Well, tonight we're going to be talking about the subject of survival of the fittest. Really? <laughs> or survival of the fittest. Hello. Really? <laughs> Gentlemen, if we could get those lights, please. Now, in talking about the question of survival of the fittest, hello. Really? Evolutionists talk about two terms more than any others when it comes to them trying to sell and deceive people into believing in evolution. They talk about survival of the fittest, and they talk about natural selection. We have presentations on both showing that neither one of them proves evolution. In fact, disproves. Both of them disprove evolution. And so tonight I want to start off by pointing out that evolution is built on two foundations. Now, remember, there's no such thing as the theory of evolution. There are many different theories of evolution, but, but the theories of evolution are based on two false foundations. Number one, time. Evolutionists believe in infinite time. Evolutionists live and die by eight words. The eight words are so important you need to memorize them. Those eight words are, give me enough time and anything can happen. Those are the eight words by which evolutionists live and die. Now, they will say, give me enough time and anything can happen. Think with me for just a moment. On the surface, that may seem plausible. On the surface, it may seem logical. But if you simply think about it in depth, you'll suddenly realize it's not true. There are lots of things that, given enough time, would still never, ever happen. The other false assumption is, of course, their belief in the God of random chance. They do believe in a God, but it's the God of random chance. And they believe that the God of random chance, working through millions and billions of fictional years, produce upward evolution. Can produce, uh, can produce rocks, and then rocks can produce people. Well, why is it impossible to offer the scientific proof of origins? Now, I'm a scientist. I was trained as a scientist. But it is scientifically impossible to prove creation or to prove evolution from a direct testing standpoint. Think with me. No human being can go back in time and witness either one having occurred. Think about it for just a moment. Scientific investigator can neither observe nor repeat origins. When we talk about the word origins, we're talking about where'd you come from. We're talking about creation or evolution. And no human being, regardless of what they believe, can go back in time and observe these things happening. We cannot experiment on them. We cannot repeat them. Therefore, they cannot be proved using the modern scientific method in a direct testing standpoint. But of course, think with me for just a moment. If you cannot prove something directly, how do you prove it? Come on, folks, it's a give me. If you can't prove it directly, you have to prove it indirectly. Excellent. See, this is the A crowd. Okay? So what we're offering are indirect proofs that creation is true and evolution is not, but they are very good proofs. Now, with that in mind, think with me. Even if scientists could create life from non-life, that is to say life from rocks, and even if we could produce higher kinds from lower kinds, it would not prove that life came from non-living material in the past by random chance natural processes. Think with me for just a moment, folks. I mean, we're getting really clever. Do you know that we can move individual atoms now? But think with me. If I had a test tube, now first of all, no scientist can speak and have something come into that test tube simply because I told it to. Is that right? Only God can do that. 
But, but let's just say that in a test tube, I could create something that was alive by manipulation. Remember, scientists do not create anything. We manipulate what already exists. But even if I could manipulate what already exists, you know, there's a great joke about the atheist in a conversation with God. And the atheist says, you don't exist. And God says, really? And the atheist says, we don't need you anymore. Really? And he says, yeah, we, we can make life now. We don't even need you. And God says, really? And the atheist says, yes. And says, okay, try it. And the atheist starts to reach down for some dirt. And God says, wait a minute, you've got to make your own dirt. <laughs> but, but think with me for a moment. Even if I could manipulate what already exists in a test tube and create a supposedly living organism, what would it actually prove scientifically? Well, it would prove it takes millions and millions of man-hour, woman-hour of effort and billions of dollars to get life. It does not come about by random chance, hello? And so that very experiment would prove that evolution is not true. Now, with that in mind, I want to introduce you to a Dutch botanist. He was an absolute evolutionist, I assure you. His name was Hugo Marie de Vries. Now, he is living, as you can see here, a hundred years ago, uh, but... Remember that when he is alive, the, the genetic information that had been developed by the monk Gregor Mendel had finally been published. Now, as posthumous, the man never received the acclaim that he should have, and he should have received a lot of acclaim, but he died basically unknown. But his laws of genetics had been rediscovered and printed, and Hugo de Vries now knows about the laws of genetics from, from Gregor Mendel's work, and he, being an evolutionist, believes, well, therefore, these things must be able to be used to prove evolution is true. So what does he do? In 1905, he writes a book, Species and Varieties, Their Origin by Mutations because mutations are the only way you can change biological DNA. So he says, well, I'm going to show how the mutation of genetic information can produce evolution. But what really happened? What really happened was he thought he had proven what is referred to as macroevolution. Macroevolution is big changes. It's the way that supposedly you, you go from an amoeba to a man. That's macroevolution. He thought he had proven it and that mutations occurred over time producing the changes from one kind to another, but what he actually did was actually found genes by accident and that mutations always go downhill. Mutations never go uphill. They always go downhill. And so... I want to talk about mutations with you. Now, this is probably the single most scientific portion of the entire week, but it's well worth the education, I assure you. Let's talk about what are mutations. A mutation means a copying error. The scientific word mutation means copying error. Now, a mutation is a structural change in the hereditary material which makes the offspring different from its parents. We can think of it this way. Mutations are errors in copying the genetic codes. Now, first of all, and I mean no disrespect to any human, believe me, but if I were to tell you that you were the result of one million additive copying errors, would you believe it? Excuse me? Well, you could have been more emphatic. Oh, well. 
Now, why can't mutations produce evolutionary ascent? Remember, evolutionists believe that things get bigger, better, faster, smarter over time, correct? That would be evolutionary ascent. I find it kind of interesting, don't you? Charles Darwin's second most famous book was about humans, and it was The Descent of Man. Shouldn't it have been The Ascent of Man? But it wasn't. It was The Descent of Man. Because evolution descends. Well, let's think about this. The laws of genetics are conservative. They are not creative. The laws of genetics are conservative. They are not creative. Genetics never produces new information. Now, when I say that, I'm talking about beneficially, but genetics only copies or rearranges the previously existing information and passes it on into the next generation. Think with me for a moment. What happens? I mean, I can teach a child, I can teach a sixth grader enough about genetics to refute any evolutionist. It is so simple. Think with me for a moment. What happens in genetics? We copy mama and papa. We pass that information on into the next generation in new combinations of information, but never new information. Did you hear that? So we copy the previously existing information. We copy mama, papa, pass it on into the next generation in new combinations of information, but never new information. After all, this is why children, we sometimes say, oh, he's got his father's chin, his mother's eyes, and so forth, right? That's just the combination, the recombination of genetic information. Now, think with me for a moment. When you copy information, you have only two choices. Think with me. When you copy something, you can either copy it perfectly, in which case there is no change, correct? Now, evolutionists say that mutations, copying errors, are the only way in which you can change biological information and supposedly get evolution. Because it has to be by random chance. Remember, there can be no outside designer, creator, God. So by random chance, they say mutations are the only method. But think with me, when you copy something, you'll have only two choices. You can either copy it perfectly, in which case there is no change. What is the only other way you can copy something? You can copy it perfectly or you can copy it imperfectly. Think with me, is it possible to copy something more perfectly? No, you can either copy it perfectly, in which case there is no change, or imperfectly, in which it always goes downhill. You see, Mutations do not accumulate over time. They do not build one upon another beneficially. Now, with that in mind, why can't mutations produce evolutionary ascent? Mutations do not create new organs or structures. They only modify existing organs or structures. Mutations lose information. They do not increase it. Mutations rearrange, remove, ruin, corrupt the previously existing information. Therefore, mutations lead to the wrong kind of hereditary change. And the addition of excess undirected energy will accomplish nothing beneficial. It will destroy the previously existing system. Now, why do I mention that? You see, evolutionists, if you really pin them down, evolutionists know that everything's going downhill. They know that. And they know it's true in genetics. But, but, how do they get around it. You see, evolutionists tell fairy tales for adults. I don't care what the objection is, evolutionists will tell you fairy tales for adults. Now, remember, I used to be an evolutionist, I used to teach this stuff, I know what they would say. So, oh yes, it's true that genetics is going downhill. 
And then they say this. This is the fairy tale. Well, but you see, it's the sun, S-U-N. It's the sun. Because the sun is putting out a lot of excess energy, and of course we capture a little tiny portion of that out here. You know, most of it just goes into space, and, and but we capture a little bit of it. And that excess energy coming from the outside, from the sun, drives a reverse and makes things go progressively forward. That we add this excess energy that comes from the sun and somehow or another it changes the direction and allows for progressive evolution. And so they say it's the sun, S-U-N, okay? But think with me for a moment. Now, I'm a foreign missionary as well as a domestic one. Um, if I were to take my laptop computer that was designed, say, only for the United States so on 110, uh, 220 volt with, is not used here, but we have 110 volt electricity, 60 cycle, and so forth. But in Russia, they use 220 volt, 60 cycle. Now, if my computer would only run on 110, and I were to take it to Russia, go over, plug it in the wall, turn it on, in about a quarter of one second, I would have what the Bible calls a burnt offering. <laughs> Why? Because I would have added excess, undirected energy to the system, but it destroyed the system. Is that correct? And so this fairy tale of the excess energy coming from the sun driving evolution forward is simply that. It's a fairy tale for adults. Now, why can't mutations produce evolutionary ascent? Well, you will never get a beneficial increase in intelligence or complexity without the input from a greater intelligence. Now, think about why do you go to school? Or, frankly, why did you come here tonight? Think with me for just a moment. Now, I'm not saying this in a proud way, but supposedly when you go to school, you go there to get the input from a greater intelligence. I did use the word supposedly. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's often not true, but that's the idea, right? That supposedly you're getting the input from a greater intelligence. And so you'll never get an increase in intelligence or complexity without the input from a greater intelligence. Now, the laws of genetics prevent new beneficial information at a higher level of intelligence or complexity from occurring by random chance. These laws prevent this from happening. They do not promote it. And mutations affect and are affected by many genes and other intergenic information acting in combination with one another. You might have been brought up with the idea that a gene controls a function, but it's not true. One gene does not control one function. They work with other genes in combinations, and, and today we now know that one human gene can produce up to five different proteins and do it on command. Now, please tell me, where's the intelligence that tells it, I want you to make this protein now, and I want you to make that protein next, and then I want you to go back and make this one? That requires intelligence, is that correct? And we now know that there are three levels of intelligence in the genetic information. It isn't simply the information that is written on the DNA. It's not in the DNA. It's written on the DNA. The same with the printed pages. The information's in the print, not the paper. Is that right? But now we know there's a second level called the epigenetic level, which is a control system. I don't want to get too technical, but it has to do with histones wrapped around the DNA that open and close and control the information being read or not read and so forth. So there's a second level of intelligence we didn't even used to know existed until a few years ago. And now we found out there's a third level. 
Try this one out. Try to write a sentence using, of course, a combination of words that gives you an intelligent message going that way, okay? And then without changing the position of the letters, gives you an intelligent sentence going that way that's different, but gives you intelligent information. Because we now know you can do that in DNA. Now that takes a great intelligence, would you agree? And so now we know there's actually three levels of intelligence in the DNA molecules. Now, why can't mutations produce evolutionary ascents? Well, think with me for just a moment. The addition of accidental duplication of previously existing information is detrimental. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. I got some great photographs I'm going to share with you. And mutations are random. They're not directed. They are not beneficial. Random mutations produce what is referred to as microevolution. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the word microevolution is a scientifically correct term. But I'm going to recommend you don't use it. And the reason I say that is this. When you are talking to an evolutionist and you say microevolution, they're going to think you're agreeing with them because you use the word evolution, okay? But microevolution is not their kind of evolution. And the more, better way of doing it is to call this lateral adaptation. It is a shift in gene frequency within a gene pool, which is really just variation within a kind. It is just variation within a kind. That's macroevolution. It doesn't change something from one kind to another. It's why we are all human, but we all look different. This is variation within a kind. Are you with me? It does not produce macroevolution, which is the big changes from, say, a, a mouse to a cow. The relentless accumulation of genetic corruptions steadily corrodes the original genetic code, leading to what is called genetic entropy. It is all going downhill. It is all going downhill fast. I have another presentation. I'll just steal a moment. Ladies and gentlemen, we now know, we now know that we are decaying, and we are decaying fast. Today, we are adding 60 brand new corruptions to the genetic information every generation. We are losing today 1% to 2% of our genetic information per generation. What that means is that I love my grandchildren, but they have 2 to 4% less genetic information in their bodies than I do. We're going downhill, and we're going downhill fast, but I do have a good word for you. This happens to be one of several scientific reasons we know the Lord is coming back soon. Hello, because I read the book, you know, the pastor mentioned that. I've read the book, and I, I know we win because I read the back end, you know. <laughs> uh, but, but the fact of the matter is that, that when we take a look at these things in genetic entropy, if we go only a few more generations, I, it, now you and I, our grandchildren are going to live, survive, if the Lord doesn't return. But if we go a few more generations beyond that, we lose so much genetic information that we will reach a point where humans become sterile. We are rapidly approaching that point. And when you become sterile, you become extinct. Now, I don't know about you, but I think of extinction as the absolute harm. Okay, apparently some of you need to think about that. But, but the Lord must come back because he tells us that people are going to be here to greet him when he returns. Is that correct? So he's got to be coming back soon. Now, why can't mutations produce evolutionary ascent? Evolutionists cannot adequately answer this one question. 
where did the original perfect information that is being copied come from? Think with me for a moment. I defeated, I've defeated several major revolutions in debates. They don't even want to debate me anymore. But, but I defeated a major revolution at Michigan. Because in a 90-minute debate, and he was a specialist in biology, uh, but in 90 minutes I asked him six times, Doctor, please tell me where did the original information we were copying come from? And in 90 minutes he could not answer the question once. He lost the debate. Since 1909, we have actually found, cataloged, documented 3,000 known mutations in fruit flies. But there is no documentation of a fruit fly evolving into something else. Fruit flies remain fruit flies. Now, I've got to tell you, folks, in these experiments, we've hit fruit flies with everything you can think of. We hit them with radiation, gamma, x-ray, etc. We've hit them with toxic chemicals. We hit them with the heel of our shoe. I mean, we hit them with everything you can think of. And we produce 3,000 known different mutations. There's one that geneticists just love, because we know actually how to force it to happen. There's one mutation where the fly develops 100 eyes all over its body, on legs, the body, etc. cetera. Uh, it's, it's weird looking. Now, you gotta remember something. These extra eyes don't work. They're not hooked up to anything. They're just eyes. But because of these eyes, the fruit fly cannot fly. Now, what do you call a fly that can't fly? A crawl? <laughs> and no natural fruit fly will mate with it. Now, if no fruit fly will mate with it, then it's not going to pass that information on into the next generation. Is that correct? Oh, so it becomes extinct in the first generation. Now, I want to share a quotation before we go on. This comes from Dr. Theodosius Grigorovich Dunzinski. Yeah, it's got a pretty interesting name, you've got to admit. Uh, but he was a world-class evolutionist, and he wrote in a major book, Mutation appears to be a destructive rather than a constructive process. So here's an evolution who admits even mutations don't produce what we think it ought to produce. So let's think about the old Drosophila. This is the fruit fly picture. Now, I want to share with you an experiment that is one of the longest running experiments in science. It lasted for 29 years, 29 continuous years, producing 600 generations of fruit flies. And again, we saw all kinds of mutations. We had mutations where legs were growing out through eyes. We had flies that had curly wings. They couldn't fly. We had flies with no wings. They couldn't fly. Again, I guess you call them crawls, right? But, but, but I mean, we had... Oh, you just you can't believe what we did to these creatures. But anyway, after 29 years and 600 generations... Now, think with me for just a moment. Because the Earth is only about 6,000 years old, you are roughly the 250th generation since Adam and Eve. This experiment went through 600 generations and no mutations produced anything but a fruit fly. Now what about vestigial organs? I'm sure that this is a subject that you had on your mind when you came in. <laughs> now, vestigial and retrogressive organs. In the year 1895, Dr. Robert Wiedersheim wrote a book called The Structure of Man, an Index of His Past History. Now, Dr. Wiedersheim was an evolutionist 
And he believed in a principle which many evolutionists believed back then and still do today. Because they believe that we are evolving, you know, from apes to people, they also believe that while we can't see it, while we can't measure it, that we are in the process of evolving into super people. Are you with me? So that we're just on the road mushing from apes to people to super people, you know? And so in 1895, he wrote a book and he listed 186 organs or structures in the human body that were vestigial, that was 100 of them, and retrogressive, 86. Now, what do these words mean? Well, the word vestigial comes from vestige or remnant. And a vestigial organ is an organ or a structure for which no known function has been demonstrated. So you've got it, but we don't know why it's there. Or retrogressive. Now, again, vestigial, useless or no longer important, vestigial and retrogressive, an organ that is no longer required. It's on the way out. So it's there and it still has a function, uh, but, but it's going away, okay? So as we're transitioning from apes to people, people to super people, it's in the process of going away. Are you, you kind of with me? It's on the downhill slope, right? Now, let's just take a look. Uh, these are some of the structures and organs that were considered vestigial in 1895 by Dr. Wiedersheim. So the pituitary gland and the pineal gland. Now, if I cut out your pituitary gland, you're going to die. Um, tonsils, wisdom teeth, human hair, or small toes, coccyx, the thymus gland. He considered those all unnecessary or on the way out. And I have a special deal for you tonight. This is free. Would you like a free deal? Here, here's a free deal. If you don't believe you need your small toes, I will for free amputate them on your way out tonight. The problem is you're going to have to learn how to walk all over again like a baby. Or also the notochord and the appendix. And I might point out that little gland in your eye that produces sleep in the morning you rub out. He said all of those were unnecessary, vestigial, retrogressive. Now let's talk about the truth about some of these things. Now, adenoids and tonsils are in fact useful. Now in 1951, the United States Army took mine out. I was a very sickly child in 5051. I was born in 46 in an army hospital. And in 51, they pulled them out. Now, in my case, it was probably the right thing to do. I'm just going to tell you that because I became healthy as a, well, uh, human ought to be ever since then. But the fact of the matter is, today, and, and you know, and I'm sure many of you had the same thing. If you got sick, they would just pop them out because evolutionary medicine said, you don't need those anymore. But today we know that it's far better to leave them in. The adenoids and tonsils are, in fact, known to be very useful. They're part of your immune system. And in 2010, well, four evolutionists called adenoids and tonsils, quote, large collections of immunologically active lymphoid tissue. They are dynamic parts of the immune system. And today, if you can save them, you want to leave them. Now, let's talk about the coccyx. Now, this isn't totally evolutionary magazine. You never read Discovery magazine. But, but I only show this because in this magazine that particular month, they were talking about the human coccyx. Uh, here you see what is often referred to as a tailbone. I mean, you know, people talk about it as a tailbone. Now, it's not a tailbone. It has nothing to do with being a tail. But, but people often call it a tailbone. And in the magazine, and I quote, they say this about the human coccyx, 
It is, quote, all that's left of the tale that most mammals still use. June 2004 edition. But ladies and gentlemen, what is the truth about the coccyx? The truth about the coccyx is, is a tremendously intelligently designed structure. First of all, I'd like to point something out to you. Knowing where you live, how many of you have ever taken the New Bay Bridge from Manatee over to St. Pete? You know, the, the old one went hit by the Exxon Valdez, interestingly enough, and took down the bridge. But they built the new bridge, right? And it has those two spires, just the two spires with the cables down the middle instead of the old suspension bridge type thing with the cables on both sides, right? And that's the new design for bridges these days. I've seen it all over the world. Do you realize that that spire with the, if you think about it, herringbone cables was actually designed, derived from the human coccyx? Oh, that's right. And let's examine the evidence about the human coccyx. The fact of the matter is, it is the anchor point for very important muscles. These muscles provide for various functions, such as they allow us to walk upright and enjoy marriage. I'll let you take it from there. Now, these muscles support and hold our intestines in place. They allow us to sit comfortably. They uh, are required for us to eliminate waste, and these muscles are uh, required for women to give birth. I don't know about you, but I think that's kind of important. And the coccyx is just like that spire on the bridge. It's the anchor point for those muscles, and it's a very clever design. And of course, what about the appendix? Now, this is a public school textbook trying to convince children uh, by illustration of comparing us with a horse. How do you like that, huh? <laughs> but, but they say that uh, our appendix is just the, the vestigial organ and uh, showing how horses basically are a much bigger structure and ours is a little tiny one and, and trying to convince children that, uh, well, we don't need them. As a matter of fact, how many of you have had an appendectomy? Uh-huh, I see hands going up all over the place. Well, the fact of the matter is that, of course, if they become inflamed and rupture, they have to be taken out. I, I fully agree. However, today, if it becomes infected and we can save it, you want to save it. And let me show you why. And by the way, I got, a, I got an amen from a doctor. Now, the removal of the appendix and tonsils before the age of 20 is today associated with, and I quote, an increased risk of premature heart attack. Not surprising because both the appendix and the tonsils are lymphoid organs and those components of the body's immune system, their removal lowers the production of immunoglobulins in the system, which you do need. Also, its removal increases a person's susceptibility to leukemia, Hodgkin's disease, cancer of the colon, cancer of the ovaries. Hello, ladies. And just recent research has shown the removal of the appendix, also Parkinson's disease, has now been added to the list. So if you can leave it in, leave it in. So let's examine the evidence about vestigial and retrogressive organs and structures. What is the truth about them? Well, if true, this would be degeneration, not generation, right? I mean, if you don't need it anymore, it's on the way out, well, that would be degeneration, not generation, correct? Comparing modern creatures to infer historical origin is invalid to ascertain the origin of those same structures. 
Also, there is no genetic evidence for a method whereby useless organs will necessarily deteriorate. We have never found anything in the genome that would cause an organ or structure to dissolve away. The function of an organ may be taken over by another organ when it is removed. Now, in engineering universities, we call this redundant design feature. This is why you have two kidneys, two eyes, two ears, and so forth. If one kidney has to be removed, the other kidney simply doubles in size, and you keep right on going. Is that right? Today, we are regenerating livers. All you need is a third of your liver, and it will regenerate a liver. This is a, a wonderful, marvelous, awesome, God-created mechanism. Hello? The function of an organ may not yet be discovered. Think with me for just a moment. Just because something there, and just because we don't know what it does, doesn't mean we don't, uh, well, can't see that it does do something. Think with me for a moment. No one creates anything without a purpose. No one creates anything without a purpose. If I gave a man a, a log and a penknife and he carved a toothpick out of it, he would have done it with a purpose, is that correct? No one creates anything without a purpose. What should we be thinking? If it's there and we can't figure out why it's there, God put it there, therefore it must have a purpose, and we just haven't been smart enough to figure out what it is yet. Hello? Yeah, we're just too dumb to figure it out yet. And the list of 186 structures and organs listed by Dr. Petersheim in 1895 has now been reduced to zero. We now know of at least one or more useful functions for every single organ and structure that was listed in that evolutionary publication. There are no vestigial or retrogressive organs, period. And God put everything there because they have a function. Amen. Can I get a big amen? Amen. amen? And I know this was on your tip of your tongue too, recapitulation theory, correct? All of you came in wondering about recapitulation theory of embryonic development, right? I mean, oh, come on. You don't rem Well, how many of you in school remember being taught about ontogeny begets phylogeny? Don't remember that one either, huh? I love that one, actually. <laughs> I want to talk about this, the recapitulation theory of embryological development. Now, this is a fraud. It's a major fraud of Dr. Ernst Haeckel, the German evolutionist of Darwin's time. Now, I have a DVD out there on carbon-14, and for free, we throw in a presentation about Dr. Haeckel, because this is a guy you really want to know something about. He is absolutely, arguably, the third most important evolutionist of the 1800s behind Charles Darwin and Thomas Huxley. And he so believed in evolution that he actually invented out of thin air various frauds and then convinced people that evolution was true using them. He actually invented a creature called Pithecanthropus allalis, which means speechless ape man. Because you see, Charles Darwin, Thomas Huxley, Ernst Haeckel, they all thought the only difference between the apes and us was we had evolved where we could talk and they could not. They thought that that was the only major difference. And so he invented this creature called Pithecanthropus allalis. Now, interestingly enough, Dr. Haeckel did have an earned PhD. Um, he taught at Jena University. And he was an interesting man because he was also an extremely good artist. Uh, it's a rare combination of scientist and good artist. Um, but uh, he actually had somebody else make a drawing of Pithecanthropus allalis, the man, the woman, and a baby. 
And uh, remember, he's German, okay? So he, uh, he took these drawings around Germany. Now, understand that in the 1860s, 70s, 80s, and so forth, uh, believe it or not, uh, scientists could actually rent a lecture hall, put up posters around town, and get blue-collar workers to come and pay to hear them teach. Maybe I should repeat that. They, <laughs> they would actually buy tickets to come and hear a scientist teach. Hello? <laughs> and he, he had this picture. It was actually drawn by another artist, but, but it showed this guy. And he's got his back turned to the audience with his head kind of over his shoulder, looking at you with his arms up and so forth. He's got enough hair for three gorillas. And... <laughs> Seriously. And the head is turned back towards the audience. Now, again, it's a German audience, right? I find it interesting. On the face of the man, there's a German handlebar mustache. <laughs> the woman is sitting with a rather long, horse-like face. The baby she's holding, you can just see the top of the head. You can't really see the baby. And he said, this was the creature from which all Europeans had evolved. To this day, there has never been one piece of physical evidence ever found to support such a creature. He just made it up. And this thing called the biogenetic law, which that was his name for it, he said uh, this was proving evolution. Now, how many of you remember these things? Now, I mentioned that another name for embryonic recapitulation is also ontogeny recapitulation. If you're not familiar with what that means, it means this. Ontogeny, which is the biological development of the individual, recapitulates, meaning repeats briefly, the phylogeny, your evolutionary development of the individual. And so Ernst Haeckel said this, in your womb, ladies, um, equal to other creatures, that we all looked alike that after we were conceived and we started to develop, we all looked exactly alike. But only as we developed in our mother's womb, you would repeat the evolutionary history that we had gone through as humans. So that uh, once you were conceived and you started to grow, you became a jellyfish. Then later in your mother's womb, you would become a fish. Then an amphibian. And then you evolved into a reptile in your mother's womb, Finally, you evolved into a mammal, and you were only born human. Hello? Yeah, I, I know, but this is what he sold, everybody. If you don't believe that that's important, let me show you something. The theory speculates that in the development of the human embryo, it passes through the evolutionary stages that are encountered in the evolution of man. And basically, you go from a single-celled organism to a worm, fish, amphibian, mammal, you're only born human. If you don't think it's important, how many of you remember those pictures? Oh, I heard yeses all over the place. Now, these are the drawings published by Ernst Haeckel on several occasions in his books. Um, but what does it show? It says, well, from the embryo standpoint, we all look almost identical. But then as we develop, we transition into whatever it is, you know, chicken, turtle, pig, whatever. Um, and these are Ernst Haeckel's very famous drawings. Now... I heard a lot of yeses that you'd seen these before. Can I, again, just ask a question? How many of you have seen these pictures before, these drawings before? Yeah, all over the room, right? Now, let's talk about these drawings for just a moment. Ernst Haeckel was a very good artist. 
But how did these drawings come into existence, and how are they being used? I was teaching in an elite high school in Karelia. Karelia is the area of Russia right next to uh, Finland, uh, and this is the best high school they've got. These students are the best students they've got, and these are smart kids. But I spent two days teaching in every single science class they had with two science teachers on all of them, biological, physics, etc. And when I talked about these drawings and the history of them and how they actually came into existence and so forth, because those drawings were in their textbooks only 10 years ago. I've also seen them in textbooks being used in United States colleges and universities, high schools and junior high schools recently. But we have known for over 100 years they're absolutely fraudulent. Let's talk about them. You see, what's the truth about these drawings? Well, number one, he stole the drawings of legitimate embryologists of the time. He changed them to make them fit his evolutionary theory. Remember, he was an artist. He took an eraser and he erased some lines that were there originally. He took a pencil, he drew in lines that were never there. He changed the size by a factor of up to 10. The actual embryos are really quite different than the diagrams you just saw. Now, I would remind you, uh, this was the page he printed in several of his books, but actually today we now know that's utterly fake. Now, again, these are cutouts of those embryos, correct? These were first published in 1874, but he repeated them several times even though people said they were fraudulent. However, these are photographs of the embryos at the same time the drawings are supposed to represent. I think you would agree they look rather different. Is that right? Oh. Now, what is the real law of how life started? You see, he called his fake thing the biogenetic law, but it's absolutely a fraud. What is the real law? It's called the law of biogenesis. Bio-life genesis beginnings, correct? This is the true scientific law. What does this law state? It says that life only comes from life and only reproduces after its own kind. That's the biogenetic law. It's the real law of life beginnings. And where did it come from? Well, it came from men like the great creation scientist, Louis Pasteur. Louis Pasteur was one of us. He was a young earth creationist. Hello? But he's a man that made many, many discoveries from anthrax cures to pasteurization, etc. A great creation scientist. He is the man who proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that rocks do not become alive by random chance. He's the man that proved that life only comes from life and only reproduces after its own kind. But he was not the first. Actually, this scientific work goes back to a man named Francesco Reddy in 1668. And Francesco Reddy, he, well, remember the time he's living in. In the time he's living in, there are people who still believe that mice and rats spontaneously generate from a pile of rags. Hello? I mean, seriously. And, and there were people in those days who still believed that flies spontaneously generated from rotting meat. And Francesco Reddy in 1668 said, that's stupid. And so he devised a simple scientific experiment to prove it wasn't true. And what was his simple scientific experiment? 
he simply took three glass jars. In the three glass jars, he took a piece of rotting meat, put it at the bottom. One jar he left open. The flies could smell it. They could fly in. They could lay their eggs. They could fly back out. The eggs would hatch, turn into maggots, and eventually produce more flies. The second bottle, it has a piece of cheesecloth over its top. Now, the flies could smell the rotting meat. They would land on the cheesecloth trying to get to the meat, but they couldn't get to the meat. And in a frenzy, they would finally, well, they'd lay their eggs on top of the cloth and then go die. And when the eggs hatched, of course, there was no food. So they died too. But one jar he simply sealed so tightly that the flies couldn't smell the meat. They didn't even go anywhere close to it. And he proved that life only comes from life and only reproduces after its own kind. But let's talk about Louis Pasteur because he put the final nail in the coffin of the whole idea. You see, he came up with what is called his swan neck flask experiment. What he did was he took a glass container, put nutrients in it, everything that biological single-celled organisms would need to, you know, populate, and a very long neck, but it was open, and then he boiled it. He pasteurized it. He sterilized the contents, right? But the neck was bent into a swan neck shape, but it was left open. It was not closed. It was left open. And what happened? Well, air could get in, bacteria and dust could get in, but they collected at the bottom down here because of gravity. They could not get up and into the flask. This experiment still exists in Paris today and nothing has ever grown in it. <laughs> Proving that life only comes from life and only reproduces after its own kind. What about variations and survival of the fittest? We're approaching our end, but I do think you might find a couple of these pictures interesting. Now, you should never, ever get your uh, education from National Geographic. I, again, assert that. But remember that evolutionists believe that dogs evolved from wolves. Now, could you please explain that one to me? Wolves are bigger than most dogs. So how did the wolf come into existence if it didn't start as a dog and get bigger? And then, of course, if the wolf was the starting and the dogs are smaller, isn't that the wrong direction? Come on, folks. Dr. Grady only asks the good questions. <laughs> but you know that I'm a full-time missionary. I've done missionary work in Russia 56 times. I have some interesting information that comes from Russian scientists. You see, we creationists always believed that, that wolves, dogs, coyotes, and foxes we're dogs. We, we've always believed it, but we could never prove it. Um, but Russian scientists did. You see, this was published uh, in 2009 by Russian researchers. They simply took 10% of the tamest pups in a litter going for three generations, and they were able to breed a lap fox. You know, lap dog, lap fox. It would call when calmed, it would cuddle up and so forth. I mean, it was just a dog, looked like a fox. And today, even the American Kennel Club agrees that this is true. Today, we know that wolves, dogs, coyotes, and foxes can all interbreed, and they are all one kind. And the Galapagos Islands finches, made famous by Charles Darwin. Now, 
Charles Darwin had a serious interest in uh, natural things. He, he was what we would not call a scientist. He was not a trained scientist. We would call him a naturalist out of his own interests, okay? Now, he was the son of Robert Darwin, M.D., a prominent, wealthy M.D., and he was the son of Dr. Erasmus Darwin, M.D., uh, again, very successful, and a strong believer in evolution. He was not only a successful M.D., he was also a very good poet. And he actually wrote poetry sponsoring evolutionary philosophy. Now, Charles never met his grandfather Erasmus. Erasmus died before Charles was born. But Charles was heavily influenced by his grandfather's writings. Now, because he was the third generation, um, well, his father, Robert, wanted him to also become a doctor. You know, third generation MD, right? So they sent them to the first medical university in the UK in Edinburgh. And he attended medical school for a couple of years, but he skipped almost every class. Because, you see, he hated the sight of blood. Come on, folks, if you're going to be a medical doctor, <laughs> hating the sight of blood is just kind of like a no-no, you know? And he wouldn't attend classes, and he was going to flunk out of school and so forth. And, well, his father's a very prominent guy, and, and he wants his son to do something useful to maintain, you know, the, the family's reputation, right? So what did he do? He sent him to Christ College, Cambridge, and in 1831, he would earn a Bachelor of Arts degree in the only thing that he could graduate in, the only thing he could get enough credits to graduate, you know what it was? A Bachelor of Arts in Christian Theology. That is the only earned degree Charles Darwin ever got, a Bachelor of Arts in Christian Theology, 1831, Christ College, Cambridge. And practically by accident, just a fluke meeting, he would end up going on the HMS Beagle on what was supposed to be a two-year trip but turned into a five-year trip and went all the way around the world. And he was not hired to be the science officer because he wasn't a scientist. He was hired to be the gentleman companion to the Captain Fitzroy. You see, in the 1800s, a ship's captain, especially in the Navy, was God. Hello? And they could not eat with the crew. And so to have intelligent conversation, young Englishmen, educated young Englishmen of the time for the adventure would go on ships to be the companion so that the captain could have an intelligent conversation at his meals, and then he was free to do whatever he had interest in. And so he was just there for that purpose, but he went around the world in five years, and he made a stop at the Galapagos Islands. Now, they were only there for a few days, but during that time, he would describe what are called the Galapagos finches, but he didn't know they were finches because he wasn't a scientist. He, uh, he mislabeled many of them. He didn't know they were all finches until they got back to England. And then a scientist told him. But we now know from genetic studies done over 20 years of time that today all 13 varieties of finches, which he did witness in the Galapagos, are simply a variation within a kind. They are one kind of finch in 13 varieties. They can all interbreed with each other. And let's talk about that uh, accidental duplication of information for just a moment. Here's a cow with five legs. Now, I don't know, in your practice, have you ever had one of those? You have, okay. So 
So you can tell them if they want. You can ask Dr. Tom here. Uh, but this is a cow with a fifth leg. Now, this is not new, additive, beneficial information at a higher level of complexity. It's actually uh, the accidental duplication of an information for a leg, but it's totally useless. It is actually using excess resources from the cow to keep the material alive, but it doesn't benefit the cow at all. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. This is not new information. It's just the accidental duplication of previously existing information, but it's totally useless. And this, uh, this sheep, I don't know if you deal with any of those, but this sheep is a kind that shepherds just love because it has a mutation where it's lost the information for regular length legs, and we call him Shorty. Now, shepherds love these because they can't run away. I'm, I'm serious. But I, I'd just like you to think about something for a second. How long would this guy last in nature? Come on, folks. The first wolf comes along. This guy's gone. I mean, uh, <laughs> hello? He doesn't stand a chance. You know? But this is the loss of information. It's not the gain of information. And reptiles are particularly prone for this particular mutation producing two heads. Perhaps you've seen two-headed snakes and so forth. Turtles do it too, as pictured here. Um, it's a very common mutation in reptiles for some reason. Um, but tell me, is that uh, beneficial? No, if we didn't preserve them, they would simply die in nature. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. Remember, one head is okay. Two heads is a monster. Well... I want you to remember, survival of the fittest does not explain arrival of the fittest. And survival of the fittest is false circular reasoning. The Greeks call this a tautology that falls on its own weight. It is patently illogical. But it's false circular reasoning, and they said it falls on its own weight. It is patently illogical. Think about the argument for the survival of the fittest being patently illogical. So, why did it survive? Well, because it was the fittest. How do you know it was the fittest? Because it survived. <laughs> it's simply false circular reasoning. It proves absolutely nothing. And notice these three uh, gentlemen right here. Um, we have the very large horned gentleman in front, then the normal average size, and then the guy in the back, he's a, he's a little weak on horns, I think you've got to admit, right? But genetic studies have proven it's the guy in the middle that actually produces the most offspring, passes on the most genetic information. The guy with the big horns, well, he dies early, wearing himself out trying to, you know, get the ladies. Uh, the guy in the back, well, occasionally he gets lucky. <laughs> but it is the one in the middle that reproduces the most often and passes on the most genes. So it's the average that reproduces the most often, hello? And sometimes it's not survival of the fittest, it's actually survival of the weakest. Many animals will fake an injury, or it's called feign death, technically death feigning, or plain dead, or plain possum, but it's a defensive mechanism to survive where they are faking weakness, is that correct? So it's not strongest, fittest. Such as hog-nosed snakes will turn upside down. The Virginia possum, plays possum. Uh, many baby animals will be absolutely immobile to prevent detection. Adult birds such as ducks and others will fake a broken wing to, to distract predators, get them away from their nests. And 
Lizards, such as geckos and skinks, will fake death. Uh, the octopus many times will fake a loss of a limb. Uh, some pre predators will fake death. In Lake Malawi in Africa, there's a predator. It fakes death floating in the water like it's dead fish. And then, of course, the little fish come along to eat the dead body, but suddenly, somehow, miraculously, when they get close, the dead fish suddenly becomes alive and eats them. Hello? Well, that was once, right? Now, uh, again, sometimes it's survival of the weakest. Recent wildlife studies have shown that it is not survival of the fittest. Now, ladies and gentlemen, two experiments, one done here in the state of Florida, in Florida, panthers were seen to pass up a tethered, healthy deer along a trail. The reason was God has placed in predators a chase-and-kill instinct. And why? If it cannot chase it, it will not eat it. Because if it isn't healthy, it can't run. If it's genetically inferior, or if it's diseased, it can't run. And God put an instinctive mechanism in the predator to protect the predator from becoming diseased and unhealthy. And it's a chase and kill instinct that if it cannot chase it, I don't care whether the animal is healthy or not, if it cannot chase it, it will not kill it. And out west, they did a similar experiment. You see, this healthy deer was tethered right on a panther trail, just looked at it, easy kill, just walked right on by. But out west, they raise a lot of sheep, you know, like New Mexico, for instance, and Arizona. And the panthers come out of the mountains to kill sheep because it's an easy kill. I mean, it's just it's <laughs> so easy for them, right? And the shepherds, of course, are losing too many sheep. So what they decided to do was this. They decided in New Mexico they would put poison collars around the necks of the smallest, the runt lambs, so that when the panthers killed them, they would get poisoned and the well, the predators would die, correct? But what actually happened was the panthers passed the small ones with the poison collars to get the bigger ones because the bigger ones could run faster. Hello? Interesting, folks? One last comment. Think with me. When a whale eats krill in the ocean, it will ingest thousands of creatures in one gulp, right? Now, if you're in the way of those jaws, you are gone. Is that correct? It doesn't matter whether you're the smartest, bestest, fastest fish in front of that creature. If you're inside its mouth when it closes, you're gone, right? So please tell me, is that survival of the fittest or is that survival of the luckiest? And what actually happens in nature is survival of the luckiest. Hello? Well... Brother Bill, it's time for you to come up in the quartet to finish off for. I hope you've enjoyed tonight's presentation. You now realize that survival of the fittest does not prove evolution. It contradicts it. Right. Amen? Amen? Thank you very much. If you would like to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ, you may contact us at the church website, gospelbaptistchurch.com, or you can go to Facebook and type in Gospel Baptist Church Bonita Springs, Florida, also, you could call the church office at 239-947-1285. Thank you, and God bless.